You're listening to Commute, the podcast. Congratulations, you'll be smarter when you get there. What up? Welcome into Commute, the podcast. I'm Dave. And I'm Jay. And we are about to take you on a deep dive on three topics that we find interesting, and we're betting that you might just find them interesting, too. We can promise you this, you'll be smarter when you get there. On this edition of Commute. Last Sunday night, the world watched as Will Smith took the stage at the Oscars and slapped Chris Rock following a joke Rock made at the expense of Smith's wife, and then proceeded to shout curse words at him from his seat. But if you were watching on U.S. cable TV, you missed that last part. So what went on behind the scenes to make sure you didn't hear it? Dr. William Stewart Halstead revolutionized the medical profession, but he also hid a sinister secret. The space race of the 1950s and 60s inspired a lot of ideas, some great and some a little out of this world. We'll tell you about one of the ones that never quite got off the ground, and ultimately, it's probably good that it didn't. All of that on this edition of Commute. Let's get it. So Dave, something I know about both of us is that we both really kind of like to be involved in like live pop culture moments. So what was your experience of last Sunday night like whenever uh, Will Smith famously or infamously uh, took the stage and sort of derailed the Oscars in front of the entire world? He went true wild, wild west, man. Um, (laughs) I'll tell you, what's really funny is I typically plan to watch the Oscars every year. I'm a big movie fan. The last couple of years, it's been weird, like with COVID and not a lot of movies in the theaters. But I just forgot it was on. And so my wife and I were just hanging out, and it was like 9.30 or whatever. And and I just randomly thought, you know, all the Oscars are on. We should turn it on. We turned it on, and I kid you not, two minutes later... The slap happened. Yeah, it was really like the slap heard around the world. You know, I mean, it sent shockwaves through our culture. You know, every news site just went wild with it. Social media couldn't stop talking about it. And uh, you saw the slap, but you didn't see, if you were watching live, you didn't see what happened after the slap. Uh, But you've probably seen what happened after the slap because you have the internet. The censorship of the whole thing is going to kind of be where we where we stop and talk about this, right? So censorship of live TV has been around for really as long as live TV has been around, but it is not always perfect. Uh, In 2012, Fox News was actually sued after they broadcast a suicide on live TV during a car chase. And although the network was on a delay, they cited severe human error that allowed this mishap to happen. And that's the thing, though, Dave. There's a human element here in broadcasting live TV and then deciding what makes it into your living room. But as a process, censorship is relatively simple. The live feed plays on one video stream, and then a delayed feed of about 5 to 10 seconds plays on another. Producers watch the live one, and if they notice something objectionable, they'll call out a dump command, and then the feed can be pixelated, blacked out, or edited before it goes out to the public. So this is what happened on Sunday whenever Will Smith went back to his seat and began shouting obscenities, uh, the dump command was given. And so dump boxes were actually introduced in the 1970s, and in the years since have become much more advanced to allow for quicker control in the moment. But when humans are in control of something, you know, of course, human error is going to occur, such as the infamous Janet Jackson wardrobe malfunction during the halftime show of the 2005 Super Bowl. 
Failure to catch expletives or nudity or other objectionable content can lead to fines from the Federal Communications Commission, specifically a $550,000 fine for CBS for the famous Janet Jackson mishap. So on Sunday night, Americans at least could see the commotion of Will Smith approaching the stage and slapping Chris Rock, but then the tape delay that followed dropped nearly 20 seconds of audio from the broadcast in which Rock and Smith both dropped expletives and awkwardness followed. But as was proven by Sunday's Oscars messiness, the rules that have regulated live content for decades may have finally been caught up to by modern technology. And this is because the unedited feed made its way to many international audiences, and then those clips quickly made their way online. This is why you have most likely seen and heard the unedited version a week after, whereas in days before social media and the internet, those unedited clips would have been buried away forever. Jim Hatcher, the chief technology officer at Human Circuit, an engineering firm that designs broadcast systems, told the Washington Post, quote, you've got commercial broadcasting under a certain set of rules and social media using another set, and you can see how easily you can get to the cut content by going on social media. How a traditional broadcast is going to compete with that, I don't know, and I don't know how the FCC will address that either. So broadcast regulations vary depending on where you are in the world, and since the U.S. is more strict about expletives and nudity compared to other countries, and many live broadcasts today are even just sent directly over the internet and bypass cable connections entirely, and as we consume content in this way, Enforcing censorship is going to be more and more difficult. But in the U.S., the standard for what you would consider TV-appropriate hasn't really changed much for the better part of a few decades. But obviously, cultural shifts happen. CBS, for example, in the 1950s refused to let actors on the sitcom I Love Lucy say the word pregnant, for example. As generations grow up watching streaming content that is not edited for TV, like on Netflix or on HBO, this content contrasts sharply with the heavily edited cable TV programming. And the standards here are still, in a way, rooted in the past, but trying to keep up with the present. On Sunday, for example, we were allowed to see a man hit another man, but hearing the F word, that's where we draw the line. So why is the violence okay, but the word is where we draw the line? The point here, Dave, though, is that the future surrounding censorship, streaming, the internet, what we censor versus what we choose not to... These are all questions that are kind of up in the air in a way, and it'll be interesting to see how censorship changes or doesn't change in the coming years, especially after what happened last week. What's so fascinating is that up until this moment, what was considered to be the most shocking live TV moment that was unplanned in history also happened at the Oscars. It was in 2017 when Warren Beatty accidentally announced that La La Land had won Picture of the Year (laughs) instead of Moonlight. An error that people had never even considered could be done. He somehow found a way to do it. La La Land had already come up and accepted the award. Three different people had given speeches by the time they realized what had happened. Was the was the Steve Harvey mishap live to where he announced like the wrong winner for Miss uh, Miss Universe or whatever? Was that? <laughs> <laughs> that was live yeah, that's too. On wasn't here. It? That's on here. That's number four. <laughs> Jay, my boy, I think it's safe to say. 
that while some are more so than others, our society at large can all agree on at least one thing, right? We're all a little burnt out. COVID sent us all home scared. Masks made us all kind of annoyed and also, may I add, caused our acne problems to come back. And don't even get me started on political unrest. It all just kind of makes us want to sit on our couch and eat chips all night, at least me. It's just so easy to just feel burnt out right now. So Jay, heavy or light, what's something that you are burnt out on right now? And actually, I'll I'll go first. So I'm burnt out on breakfast. (laughs) So during the week, I commute anywhere from 45 minutes to an hour to work, and I am burnt the heck out on breakfast bars. Like, I've tried every single breakfast bar that Kroger sells. They're good for like two to three weeks, and then they make me literally nauseous. So I am burnt out on breakfast, specifically breakfast bars. How about you? I have an issue where, you know, I'm in the stage of life where I'm just like really busy. I have a lot of, I have three young kids, um, you know, I have a job, like, and so when I get home in the evening and I have to cook dinner, I'm kind of looking for like fast things, right? So like meals I can make like in 30 minutes or something. But the problem is, is that when I find one, I just kind of like work it into the rotation and then I just burn it out like crazy. And so it'll just kind of build up to this point where I'll just like make the same thing like over and over for weeks. And then one day everybody just snaps and they're like, I hate this. Don't ever make this again. Like we had tacos Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday. It's, it's really kind of like that though. Well, Jay, one particular group that isn't new to burnout is medical residency students. Depending on specialization, med school residents are worked long hours for very little pay, all with the hopes of making it out on the other side as a fully licensed doctor. But Jay, some actually get so burnt out that they'd rather take the debt they already accrued and the uncertainty it brings and actually drop out of med school. Reported burnout rates vary, but a study conducted by the National Center for Biotechnology Information found that around 50% of all med school residents report serious burnout. That number even balloons up to 63% for neurology residents and 75% for OBGYN residents. So why do we do this to the folks we count on to help us in our time of need? I mean, sure, doctors are paid well, but who came up with such a seemingly bad system? Well, Jay, get ready, because it's kind of weird. Today, I introduce you to a man most people have probably never heard of before, but a man that if you've ever had a surgical procedure of any kind, he's probably positively affected your life. Jay, I present to you the strange life and impact of a man named William Stuart Halstead. Born in the 1850s, a time when most Americans had very poor standards of health, in fact, only about half of the children being born in that time actually lived past the age of five. But it can be argued that Halstead did more to modernize medicine than just about anybody in history. For starters, Halstead standardized bringing rubber gloves and sterile instruments into the hospital room as a policy. In his book, Genius on the Edge, The Bizarre Double Life of Dr. William Stewart Halstead, author and plastic surgeon Gerald Ember said that Halstead realized what others had failed to, that most deaths were actually caused by infections that occurred during attempted surgeries. 
He recognized that the surgeon's hands were the main culprit in spreading the infection, Ember told NPR. So he insisted on all sorts of sterilization techniques for the surgeon's hands, resulting in the development and use of rubber gloves for surgery. And Jay, Halstead just approached healthcare differently than others of his day. From gallbladder surgery to breast cancer treatment, Halstead's techniques featured the innovative thinking required to develop the mapping for modern surgeries that we still use today. It can be argued that from his work came almost every great surgeon in America, and his technique of teaching surgeons opened the door to the modern residency program and program structure, excellence coming about by way of long hours and intense requirements. But Jay, you see, here's the thing. Halstead had an issue. As I'm sure you've caught on to by now, outside of his work with surgeries and sterilization, Halstead revolutionized the anesthesia process and in doing so became a drug addict, most notably addicted to cocaine, realizing that it not only made him feel good, made him better socially, and gave him the ability to work harder, longer, and faster Halstead saw a unique numbing property present in cocaine. And while this discovery would ultimately lead to the development of local anesthesia utilized in outpatient surgeries and in dental offices, it also led to many of his med students and associates becoming cocaine addicts themselves. And get this, Halstead often required that they use it. And Jay, some of this led to dropout from med school altogether and even death. So, Jay, while I could go on and on, but we're out of time on Halstead for now, just let this sink in, my friend. Many critics argue that some of the fundamental structures of medical residency, a system, as I mentioned before, that leads to massive burnout, was created, and some would say perfected, by a cocaine addict. So there's a lot of connection here, obviously, to someone like Sigmund Freud, right? So he's like the father of psychology in some ways. He started experimenting with psychotherapy and kind of pioneering the field of psychology, but same type of thing, right? He was addicted to cocaine. He used it heavily in his research. And uh, today, though, kind of, I guess the difference between him and Halstead is in today's world, you talk about Sigmund Freud in a psychology class because he kind of got the ball rolling in modern psychology. But you also mentioned we don't really hold any of his ideas as relevant to today's world. Are you ready for this? Guess who introduced Halstead to cocaine? Are we about to connect the dots? Sigmund Freud! (laughs) Whoa! We didn't even plan it. So Dave, uh, what do you think about the moon? What's your relationship like with the moon? I'm glad you asked. So when I think about the moon, I think about this. A group of friends uh, and I, we had all gone to dinner. And one of our friends, uh, they had brought their, their son along. And he was just a little kid at the time, like six or seven years old. Another one of my friends, uh, that we, we just started talking about various things. And my friend told the, the kid, he said, did you realize that the moon was made of cheese? And I, we, we laughed. It was kind of funny, whatever. We moved on. A couple of hours later, I heard the kid ask his mom kind of secretly. He said, hey, mom, did you know that the moon is made of cheese? <laughs> <laughs> He'd been thinking about it all day. <laughs> well, you know, we haven't always as a nation had a positive relationship with the moon. Uh, you know, at, at one point in our history, we actually thought about causing some damage to the moon. Let me set the scene for you first here, Dave. The year is 1958. 
and the Cold War was at its height, and the U.S. and the Soviet Union were engaged in the space race, which was this competition between the nations to prove their you know, technological superiority by exploring space the fastest. And by 1958, Dave, the U.S. was squarely behind in this competition. The Soviets had launched Sputnik, the world's first satellite, the year before, and the U.S. was sort of facing an image problem here. The Soviets were staking their claim on the territory of space and writing the narrative that they were more technologically and scientifically advanced than the capitalist West. So the U.S. desperately needed to prove to the world that it hadn't lost the space race, and the country needed to do this in a very big and very public way. So this urgency and desperation led to the U.S. Air Force launching Project A-119, The goal of this project was actually very simple. The U.S. would develop a plan to launch a nuclear missile at the moon. To start, the Air Force consulted some of the country's leading scientists, such as Dr. Leonard Rifle, who was one of the country's leading experts on the effects of nuclear explosions. Rifle brought on Gerald Kuiper, an expert on planetary physics, and a young graduate student named Carl Sagan. Yes, it's that Carl Sagan. The team was aiming to investigate questions surrounding nuking the moon, such as, is it dangerous? Could there be some consequences we haven't thought of? Or is it even possible? And over top of all of this, Dave, you have to ask, like, are they serious? Why are they participating in this in the first place? And I think for context, we have to understand the times these men lived in. Scientists were torn during the Cold War. Those that assisted in developing weapons, for instance, stood to advance their careers quickly. And those who refused or stood against the U.S. military scientific research were often blacklisted, publicly shamed, or even labeled communists. Robert Oppenheimer, the father of the atomic bomb, for instance, was blacklisted following his publicly stated regret for his role in developing the weapon and labeled a security threat. Many of these scientists believed that they were serving their country by developing technology that could help win the Cold War. And while nuking the moon for a public relations stunt, while it might seem crazy in hindsight, it was willingly accepted by all parties involved, at least the ones who knew all the details. Other scientists viewed this as a good excuse to study the surface of the moon, to look for microbes, or to experiment with lunar chemistry. And now nuking the moon wasn't just about the idea of it, Dave. It was more about the spectacle of it. Had the mission been achieved, spectators on Earth would have actually witnessed it. From Earth's surface, you would have seen the flash from the explosion, and in some places, you would have even been able to see the debris coming from the moon's surface. And if you don't think that's kind of awesome, well, I don't really know what to tell you. So, Dave, this was less about can we do this, and it seemed more to be about, like, watch us do this. The grand vision here was literally to show the Earth that the U.S. had major nuclear power. (laughs) The explosion would send a message to the people of Earth, and that message is, we can nuke the moon, so we can nuke you, so don't mess with us. I gotta say, man, you kind of sounded like an alien general there. Hey, I've got some public speaking skills. You know, if if you wanted me to make the case for why... Why we should do this, I can do that too. Now, ultimately, Dave, the project was scrapped, as you would guess. And although it did get a lot farther than you may think, uh, scientists really raised a lot of concerns here, uh, namely that the launch of the nuclear missile into space created a major hazard for the people on Earth if the launch failed. And other scientists worried about contaminating the surface of the moon with radioactivity and making future missions there unsafe. The military also worried how the explosion would actually be received on Earth as well 
well, as in people might be offended at the U.S. defacing the surface of the moon without asking anyone rather than just thinking that it's awesome. And while in the grand scheme of things, this project just seems insane, and it really was, it's also a good lesson in the power of desperation. You know, oftentimes desperation creates these sort of vacuums of ideas in which people laser focused on a goal tend to think outside the box, sometimes in really extreme ways to try to get ahead of the issue at hand. And in this case, scientists and the military alike were feeling immense pressure to counter the Soviet Union. And while this seems crazy in today's world, you have to take a Cold War perspective to help it make sense. Rifle himself has spoken in the years since off and on about the project, saying, quote, thankfully, the thinking changed. I am horrified that such a gesture to sway public opinion was ever considered, which tells us that maybe the military never fully briefed the scientists on the nature of the plans of the research. But as we move into the modern age of space travel, this perspective is going to be important. Nations will inevitably try to militarize space moving forward. And as this happens, there are going to be a lot of ideas put out in desperation to compete. But hopefully this time we can just leave the moon alone. I really have a hard time believing that this is true. So this is, this is great. I learned something. But um, here are some fun moon facts for you from National Geographic Kids. Hit me with the moon facts. It takes 27.3 days for the moon to travel all the way around the Earth and complete its orbit. Okay, so there's one. Number two, although the moon shines bright in the night sky, Jay, it doesn't produce its own light. We see the moon because it it reflects reflects light light from from the the sun. sun. I think most people don't know that, so you're welcome. And let's end here. Here's something you're you, borderline insulting. You definitely don't know this. <laughs> the temperature of the moon varies from super hot to super cold. When the sun hits its surface, temperatures can reach a scorching 127 degrees on the moon. And then when the sun goes down, and I'm reading verbatim from National Geographic Hits, temperatures can plummet to negative 153. Burr. So, yeah, commute the podcast. We are squarely pro-moon. We are squarely anti-nuking the moon. And that's it. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Don't forget to rate, subscribe, and review Commute on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast platform. Check us out. We're on social. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And you can always say what up at our website, commutethepodcast.com. Music for Commute is provided by my main man, Jason Sammons. And for Jason, and I'm Dave Traub. We'll see you next week.